You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. There is another America, and it lies just beneath the surface of myth. Adrift on a sea of illusions and imprisoned by implacable ideologies that strangle reason and compassion. We are not in this together. The real America is a place obsessed with religion, but not ethics. With law, not justice. It is neither the democracy nor the capitalist society touted by corporations, politicians, and the media who perform their own kabuki dance of pretend objectivity when, in reality, they're another cog in the corporate state, dependent on its largesse. What is most disturbing, however, is the willful indifference and arrogance that has now made many Americans comfortable with injustice, both at home and abroad. In the United States of Salesmen, It matters little what is in one's heart. It is the verbal, animated gestures of patriotism and faith, no matter how insincere, which are the measure of one's Americanness today. Straighten your stars and stripes lapel pin, adjust your tie, and no matter what you see and hear, just remain seated. Forgive me, but I prefer to stand, and I have never much cared for club pins on my clothing. America's capacity for self-delusion is equaled only by its hypocrisy, which for decades has allowed us, without a hint of irony, to lecture other nations on human rights while torturing people in our custody. America has long spoken of democratic values while working tirelessly during the 20th century and before to thwart democratic movements and elected governments that have not coincided with our national interests, which has often meant nothing more than forcible corporate access to other people's property. General Smedley Butler, one of America's most decorated soldiers, who, I assume, was exhausted by the hypocrisy himself, wrote in his 1935 book, War is a Racket. I spent 33 years in the Marines, most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. A great many Americans have never fully understood that the past does not reside in some dead history. It is always being retold, passed between sister and brother, from parent to child, creating new resentments about unaccounted-for transgressions. Those histories roll in front of us until we run into them again like an unresolved Freudian dream. Far from being something to be avoided in the future, however, in America this repetition of manufactured and unresolved conflict is for some their bread and butter, or, as the gangsters in the movie say just before they shoot their fellow mafioso, this is nothing personal. It's just business. And business is exactly what it is. Michael Katakis is the author of Dispatches, The Vietnam Veterans Memorial, 
excavating voices, listening to photographs of Native Americans, traveler, observations from an American exile, and photographs and words with Dr. Chris Harden. His new book is A Thousand Shards of Glass. Thank you for speaking with me, Michael. Thank you for having me, Ray. Michael, as I read the beautiful, elegant, economic, sparse essays in this book, it struck me that this is a very interesting kind of writing. So many things we pick up to read. We are reading one thing, but there's another message kind of coded within what we're reading. If we're reading somebody's memoir, it's maybe their life as an example. If we're reading a work of fiction, the work of fiction, there are themes beyond what the book is, the actual words in the book are. This book is utterly amazing in your ability to summon a direct voice to cut down to words that have say nothing but what you're trying to say, to address the subjects you're trying to address in the most direct manner possible. I'd like you to talk about choosing to speak directly to your audience. You know, as you were saying this, Rick, what what I remembered almost almost painfully so was how obsessive this book became. Uh, this book was published uh, only after I had polished it over a hundred times. I would not let it go. I felt that I couldn't let it go. Uh, it never seemed complete. It doesn't seem complete now in some ways. I somehow wanted to convey everything that my late wife Chris Harden and I had been talking about in daily conversation about what we were observing in the United States, how we felt, how it felt to be treated as we were as Americans in certain areas of American life, um, most specifically when Chris became ill. And I knew that this couldn't work, that, that none of this would work if I couldn't communicate so directly first to myself that I could read it and understand what had happened to me over these years and then directly to the person I was speaking to as I have so many people in the United States for so long about these issues. But the difference was it came from a very personal point of view rather than an abstract, let me show you these statistics, let me show you people's eyes roll over now with this. We've been drowning in statistics and numbers and infant mortality is the worst in the United these kinds of discussions. And it makes no difference. So it seemed to me that a personal story, personal observations as I moved through this life, someone might say instead of statistics, and you know, I saw that too. You know, I felt that too. To where we were comrades in arms against the situation rather than me telling you a lot of facts. This is uh, one of the sparsest and most beautifully written books I've ever read. I think the, the prose is just uh, oh pristine. So I'd like you to just talk about, you said you went through this a hundred times. Yes, as you As you rewrote these pieces, how how much longer were these, were, and how much did they change, and how much as you were writing, 
did the pieces change you? Well, that, Rick, I can tell you that many of these pieces uh, came out. The only way I can describe it is is kind of like a giant block of marble. I suppose that a sculptor, they they basically have the form. It's inside the marble. It kind of all came out, and then a great deal of time was was spent paring down, refining the sentences so they were so crystalline, so that it could just be so simple. I didn't want anyone to misunderstand what I was saying. I wanted to be very, very clear. I wanted to declare myself wrong or right and take either the kudos or the arrows. I did not want a hiding place for the words. And the only way that I could get there was by removing more words. So that finally, like fine French cooking, we've talked about this before, reduction, 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 trying to get to the essence of what it was. So, so I, I didn't want someone to not read this book and walk away going, what do you think he meant by that? I did. I wanted people to say that bastard. I so disagree with that. Or you know, I this happened to my grandmother. Or this happened. I wanted a connection to be made, whether it was hate or love or a communication with each other of understanding. But I did not want any kind of confusion about what I was saying. The core idea here is there are two, and one of them is your perception that we are not in this together. Talk about making this perception something that we can get, but doesn't feel like it's shoved down our throats. I think that every American that I've ever spoken with knows we're not in this together. They're always talking about the other. They're either talking about those people who are creating problems in certain cities, or those immigrants that have come in, or the rich, or the middle class, or the poor. I've never seen in America that we're in this together. I've seen a fractionalized place where uh, people are often adversarial, and they are adversarial more often than not for nothing more than a handful of silver. Money is the currency of what we do here. And we do it from, my gosh, I mean, my goodness gracious, we have a prison system that's privatized, which then would suggest to any reasoned person that someone has a vested interest in keeping more prisoners and keeping them longer. And so are we in it together? Is it about rehabilitation or is it about uh, something else? Uh, we have a health care system that up until recently, with a president pushing very hard, using a lot of his capital, was trying to do one thing. He was trying to make sure that every citizen in this country had access to health care at a reasonable price. Sounds like a very simple concept, but it's eluded people for decades. And why has it eluded us? Because certain parties in this country profit greatly from it. So no. We're not in this together. Uh, I haven't seen us in anything together for a long time. I know I hear great stories about World War II and all of these kinds of things, and I think that's wonderful. 
I think it wasn't the greatest generation. It was a darn good generation. But we then tend to mythologize ourselves over and over again. When I'm suggesting that the truck has been broken for some time, and if we all sit around and keep saying the truck's not broken, I, it, it, it's, it reminds me of being on a trip. The truck is broken down. There's three people in the truck. Two of them come out, lift the hood, look, and say, my gosh, look, the carburetor has t melted. And the other person goes, no, it hasn't. And you say, well, we, we have to agree. I know it's your truck, but we have to agree, and we have to fix it and get on the road. No, it's just fine. And there we all sit on the road. Again, I, I think we have decided in America a long time ago that nothing but nothing should interfere with business and profit, even when death is concerned, our fellow citizens, our well-being is concerned. That is not an environment where you're all in this together. You are in competition with each other then, and you're adversarial. You also say in this essay, and I think this is really interesting, that we must tell the truth about ourselves to ourselves. Yes, we must. We must because it's going to make us better. We're a little sick now, but we can get better. And our best days could lie ahead, but only if we get torn away from this mythology about ourselves that we keep bolstering up. I'll give you an example. You'll have a conversation with someone and say, you know, it's, it's not appropriate, our healthcare system, the way it is. Ah, but you know, I've heard situations. Yeah, it's, it's trouble here, one person said to me, but you know, they got a lot of problems in France with this other medicine. Well, that, that may be the case. But at present, we're talking, as Gore Vidal said, of the United States. So let's stay on the subject. Let's talk about us and not bring other things in. Let's talk about us. You talk about America as an aggregate. America needs to get right with itself. And to a certain degree, this is a rather dangerous course to take as a writer and as a in a sense, as a thinker, uh, and because you open yourself up to all sorts of instant labeling, instant yes. being confined. So, but I think as a writer, you do a good job of slipping under and around those potential traps by virtue of using clean prose and keeping on the topic and also keeping your pieces to show have an open mind. So talk about putting a target on yourself and then trying to make sure that that target is very difficult to hit. Well, you see, it's so interesting what you say because I was taught from the time I was a small boy in, with an immigrant family in Chicago that this was a place where one could voice dissent. <laughs> I, was, I was taught that. You were taught that, in eh? In school, in uh, the houses where I visited. You know, this is a country where you can... Give your opinion and voice your opinion. Uh, Gore Vidal once said that uh, in this country you are free to write anything you want and they're free not to publish. <laughs> and I think Americans are always these days poised to be offended about anything. Uh, we can't have a discussion if someone ha holds a view to where I might hold an opposite view and we 
engage in an exchange. It's not seen as an exchange. It's well, seen have, as an attack. You have freedom of speech so long as everything you say is something I agree with. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I'm saying that I think what was best in the school system in Chicago, the public school system, I might add, was that they did combine this idea of patriotism and faith with with the idea that citizenship meant you kept thinking. You didn't just mouth the received or perceived wisdom of the day. You searched your conscience. You dissented when you thought it was appropriate to dissent, what I would call loyal dissent. Because I was taught that when I finally got older and walked on Colville-sur-Mer and Omaha Beach and in other places in the world, I had been taught that all those people had died so that I could exercise dissent, so I could say, my country is wrong now. It shouldn't do that. I was taught that that was one of the highest forms of patriotism, though I would not suggest for a moment that I'm a patriot. I'm just a writer and a citizen who feels we're in a very, very, very bad way. I might suggest you are a patriot, but a patriot uh, to, uh, I guess, a parallel uh, nation that it existed at one time and we've drifted away from that nation. A lot of the inspiration, I think a lot of what I feel what drove you, you can feel the core of this book as we read it, is in your essay, Dying the American Way. Yes. Talk about writing about an abstraction when you're immersed in the most terrifying and deeply saddening experience of your life. Yes. What you're talking about is the dying of my late wife, uh, Chris Harden. And I, at a young age, was acquainted with death too soon, uh, approximately eight years old, when I watched my mother dying and watched the medical system savage our family at that time. Now, that was 1963. Now, in 2007, my wife uh, has a brain tumor. And we are put through a system so brutal, the business of medicine, not often the caregivers or the doctors, but the business of medicine, that I realized that not only had nothing improved since 1963 in terms of that, it had actually gotten far worse and far more corporatized and far more brutal. When I tell people in Europe or other parts of the world what our system is, how it works, how much money you have to pay, how you do this, I must tell you they look at me with absolute shock. A little Italian man where I lived in Italy, a fisherman, he once invited me to coffee. He said, Michael, why 45 million people, no health insurance, your country? I said, well, Giuseppe, it's complicated. It's very complicated. He said, no, 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 he's a mafia. I said, Giuseppe, it's many things, but it's not the money. No, 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 he's a mafia. I said, Giuseppe, no. He said, well, they, they make a promise to you. Uh, you need them, and they're not there. Yes? I said, 
Ah, he said, oh, scuse, scuse. In your country, you call them insurance company. But while that's humorous, it did feel like that, that I did not have options, that as I tried to protect my wife, these people with their endless calls, their endless hands out, hundreds of thousands of dollars, searching all the time, that was not the worst of it. The worst of it was that the system on the one hand you have the doctors and nurses trying desperately to care for someone. And you have a system, here we go again, not in this together. You have a system of insurance or delivery of care that is now trying to deny coverage when someone needs it most. Questioning the doctors and the nurses doing these things because their interest is in profit. The interest of the doctors and nurses is try to save someone's life. It's a lot like getting on an airplane and the pilot knows that he needs to take off with flaps up, but he has to call an insurance company first. And they say, not today. We'd like you to fly with flaps down. Doesn't make very much sense. I'd like you to talk about writing about really emotional topics and conveying that emotions, but not in such a manner as to overwhelm your reader or excite their emotions to the point where their brains shut down and are sure. unable to take it in. I consider it very much like Alfred Hitchcock's films where he suggested to you what was happening and your imagination took it over and that was even more horrible than you could possibly imagine. You don't have to tell the specifics you just have to suggest and suggest in a very calm way what's happening because then I think it goes in very deep. Uh, I think when I've talked to people and I've said to them uh, what Chris had gone through, they said this, they, they came to a lot of conclusions about a lot how, what was more horrible. It's very interesting that people did that. And I've tried to tell them that the most horrible thing was not anything they were suggesting. The most horrible thing was that you were told you had a limited amount of time with someone that you dearly loved. But now the system came and robbed you of that time and took your gaze and your attentions elsewhere in the attempt of trying to keep this person alive. So it's like a Chinese finger puzzle. The more you pull, the tighter it gets. And where you should be focusing, you can't focus. You're elsewhere. You're being robbed of the time, and then the time is gone. And when people thought about that in my discussions with them, that the death was imminent, it was terrible, a terrible death, but there were moments and windows where you had together that weren't terrible, but those were taken away, too. That's... Uh, that's really difficult to, to um, face. And I think that reading... the reading experience helps us to take that in. 
And that's one of the, the power of a piece of writing as opposed to any other form of communication is that you put us in your mind, engage us in a personal conversation, and enable us to internalize those feelings. And then when we remember the reading experience of those feelings, we can process them in a way that's outward. We take it in, but then we can push our feelings back out through those memories of the reading. You, you touch upon something here that's terribly important to me. Um, we have to finally come to a conclusion about ourselves, and, and it is something I've wrestled with for a long time. Are we a good people at the end of the day? Some of the things that we've done, the way we behave today toward one another, might suggest we are not. I, I believe people are more good than not. They're because, because in my 62 years, I've met more decent and good people than I have not. So just from observation of going through my life. But we've been sleepwalking. We, we haven't been paying attention. We forgot that if the kid down the street of our neighbor was in very dire trouble physically, health-wise, whatever, that whether we know it or not, it affects us on that block, on that street, in that town, in this country. If we think that we can sequester people and sequester things that we must attend to, we've tried that many times in our history. Uh, in Chicago, it was called Cabrini Green, where we warehoused poor black people. That didn't help. It made things worse. It affected the town and the people and the psyche of the country. And what I see primarily now is we're very psychologically damaged. I think that uh, one of the things you do well in this book is modulate your tone. So we will read something that's pretty powerful and disturbing, but thought-provoking as well. And then you'll take us to something like Thanks for the Dance, Mr. Bedall. Yes. And this is a, a, a charming memory of a moment of change. And I think what's interesting is that while we are reading about this moment of change for you in your life, the words are also working on us to make that reading experience a moment of change for us, to make mm. us understand that we might be in the process of reading this book being changed and not realize it yet. Oh, of course I would love that to happen, especially with young people who so fret about their futures these days and are so, I meet so many of them who are so serious, you know, very serious. And I think it's good to be serious, but I also think it's good to acknowledge that futures are uncertain that one must be bold, be brave, take a chance, scary, Ooh, very scary, but also terribly exciting, terribly exciting when you follow something that you think you might believe in. Can you imagine every day waking up and you get excited about the work you're going to do? Hemingway, I think, at the end of his life, I heard somewhere, I, I don't know if it's true, but I so loved it, even if it's not, 
He said there were, as he came to the end of his life, there were a few things that he thought constituted a good life. And one was work that you woke up and loved doing and tried to do well every day. Two was enjoying yourself in bed. I think he meant with someone else, but I'm not quite sure. Uh, he Friends around a table uh, with good food and good wine and great conversation, and those people around the table, people you cared about. Now, it sounds very un-Hemingway-esque, doesn't it? But I think he was on to something, if in fact he said that. And I, I think a fulfilled life is a life where you're constantly thinking and you're constantly poised to change your direction because of things that you found out. I think that makes for a terribly exciting life. Uh, you know, the, the, the brevity of the pieces in this book really is an, it's an interesting aspect of, of the writing because they sometimes they seem almost like prose poem polemics. And, mm, and, God, and, that's, that's, that's interesting. Uh, and I think one of my favorites is is your your piece called "The Believers." Oh yeah. And I, one of the things I think that this piece addresses the scourge of faith, essentially the the mm-hmm. idea of you quote Dr. Chris Harden, your wife. You know, I'll yeah. I'll see it when I believe it, right. which is a an interesting uh, perception of faith, and. So talk about writing a piece about faith that seeks to undermine, to a certain extent, our dependence on faith, but it's based, in a sense, also on your own faith that we have the wherewithal to do so. Oh, I yeah, Rick, I do believe in us at the end of the day. I mean, the word belief is, is a really tricky word these days. I was trying in that piece uh, to actually be a bit funny, but sadly I found out that uh, Greeks cannot do well being intentionally funny. <laughs> As, uh, but I've, I tried to say, oh, come on. Basically, this piece is a big, oh, come on. Let, let's just chat a little bit and let us not let these beliefs get in the way of us exchanging ideas and that one can believe something and that there's nothing wrong with that. It is when it crosses the Rubicon and it becomes now a kind of tyranny of truth that is used to make others comply or to feel less than or to stop thinking. Uh, Orwell once said that orthodoxy is not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. So I, the idea that faith undermines things in our country or stalls things in our country, I would have to say thus far it has, very seriously. All different kinds of faith. Uh, faith blindly following the political system. For instance, anyone who identifies themselves as a liberal, a Democrat, or a Republican stopped thinking a long time ago. I'm neither a Democrat nor a Republican, a liberal or a conservative. I'm engaged in ideas and a view that people should be treated with a certain amount of decency. 
I think that both conservatives and liberals, such as they're called these days, you could find many who agree with that simple statement. So the idea that I'm a liberal or I'm a Republican in itself is in a kind of bizarre belief system that limits one's ability to embrace ideas that they think they might not agree with. Well, you know, that brings up an, an interesting point about this book. This is a book that in large part is about politics, but it somewhat eschews politics. This book is a conversation not just with the reader, but also a conversation with yourself. No, it is. It definitely is. Uh, you know, I think that many people are going to take away from this book that somehow I'm very liberal, uh, that I am, uh, because the people that I am very critical of, many of them in the book, are happen to be Republicans. But they deserve my criticism, whether they were liberal or conservative. The letter to George Bush, he, he earned that letter. He earned it <laughs> by his indifference to people's suffering, his jingoism, his ignorance, and his passivity in trying to concentrate and understand what people were going through and the consequences of his actions. If he had been a Democrat, the letter would have been written exactly the same way. Um, as I say in there, I was criticizing the man. And uh, it's almost impossible to avoid politics in the United States today, too. And I, I, I resent that to a, to a point, that you are labeled very quickly today, very quickly. That's an interesting point. I never thought about that, but that's really true. No matter what you're talking about, what you're discussing, what, and I find this in you know, a lot of uh, any kind of literary discussion, no matter where you start to talk, it, people will, can and tend to pretty quickly fix you somewhere on the political spectrum. Yes, we're not good at having the conversation. One of the reasons I'm so comfortable in England is they love the word play and the exchange and the debate. They're not frightened of it. They're not offended by it. They like the discussion. I once asked Lord Boyd of Duncansby in the House of Lords, do you have people here that you believe if you had a strong argument a really cogent argument. Do you believe in this house that you can change each other's minds based on the merits of what you're... He said, oh, yes. He said, yes, you can here. He said, I don't want to romanticize, but he said that, that people who wouldn't have that view wouldn't last long around here or be paid much attention to. Now, is it perfect? Absolutely not. But there seems to be a more free exchange without people then wanting to pummel each other over the head for their views or to vilify them or to diminish them. It is an exchange of views, and people can feel very passionately about these things, and I understand it. And by the way, people should feel passionately about it, and they should march in the streets. Uh, I also say in the book that's why I know that most Americans don't care about 
the wars that are going on or the veterans that are coming back because they're not part of that. I don't see any marching in the streets. I don't see any debates. I don't see anything. There, the uh, Dear President Bush say it out so is kind of like a part of this, uh, a little mini trilogy in this book about your response to 9-11. Yeah. And I thought this is a really nice, the way you broke this up and kind of fragmented it. I think the, the fragmentary aspect of this book is really, really important. I mean, it's actually right there in the title, isn't it? So talk about the ghost of T.E. Lawrence, which I think is a, as a commentary on 9-11, just the title itself is chilling and informative and, and beautiful. Um, Dear President Bush saying out so, and then Other Voices, the, the second rendition of The Other Voices, which I think is a really interesting technique. Hmm. Well, on September 11th, you know, I was living in Montana at the time. I was in Montana at the time. And my wife and I, like millions and millions of people around the world, were watching television and watched the planes go into the Twin Towers. And, of course, everybody basically knew what that meant when the second plane hit. And I am not immune to anger and hatred and revenge. And I was pretty angry. I was very angry and I was very sad. And it took me most of the day to calm down a little bit, just just to get my bearing again. And I thought of Lawrence of Arabia. I studied Lawrence for a long time. And I worried that um, my country might act too quickly and in haste. And I would understand it too, too quickly and not think it through. And I knew that if we did that, we would get lost in a quagmire for possibly, as I wrote there in the journal entry at the time, for years and years to come. I'm very sorry to say it's come to pass. And I had said in that piece, I had hoped that the leaders had read Lawrence. And I had been very hopeful that President Bush would, went with this terrible burden on him now, be able to bring the country together and rise up and, and be responsible, something he did not do. Uh, I never wrote to President Bush until he signed a book deal and afterwards did some interviews, as did Mr. Cheney, that appeared on public radio, some of the excerpts that was reported on public radio. And uh, he said that basically he had given the order for torture. And Mr. Cheney said the same thing. And I thought to myself, my God, my, the leaders of my country just said that they were war criminals. Uh, and typical of Americans today, they pontificated, they made rationales and excuses, but they had just declared themselves war criminals. My father had been a soldier in World War II, fought on Crete. He would have been appalled. And it was at that point that I was going to write the International Criminal Court, asking, please, I know we're not signatories to it, but please, intervene, look into this, because obviously President Obama will not, and we need resolution. And before I sent that letter, I wrote that letter to President Bush, stating what I was going to do. As much as the use of torture 
was proved to be ineffective. And we, in retrospect, in hindsight, we should not have gone in that direction. I still think that putting ourselves in these people's shoes helps us understand how these things can come to pass. Indeed. But we're faced with something that I think the cowardice of the administration at the time was so subtle. A Marine who I like very much once said to me when he heard my opposition to, by the way, you always know when someone's doing something wrong, they change the name of it. Mm. So torture wasn't torture anymore. It was enhanced interrogation. Really Orwell Newspeak at that point. Oh, yes. It doesn't sound so bad. Sounds legal, in fact. Well, that was the idea. That was the idea. But a Marine asked me, there's a man across the street that we have in custody. Your wife is in the other building. She's being held by someone else, and they have a bomb. And this man has the code to defuse that bomb from here. Uh, he said, are you saying that you would hold to your position of not torturing someone? I said, no, no, I'd torture the man until he gave me the information. And the Marine was dumbfounded. And I said, I would do it because my emotions would take over. I love my wife. I want to do anything to protect her. I also want to have the courage as I'm beating the man and torturing him that I say to people, what I'm doing is completely illegal and wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, and then hold me accountable. Well, that's a very interesting response, and that is, I think, something we did not, we have not seen, and I think ultimately we will never see. And for me, as I read this book, this is a book that makes you think about your responses to these kind of of these kind of situations. That makes you explore that as you are having this conversation with yourself, as you are having this conversation with us, this book also inspires us or leads us to have a conversation with ourselves. And I think that takes me to a piece that you call Just Another Dark American Day, where you find yourself abroad and after uh, one of yet another mass shooting. We, they happen so often here. Anything I say today is quite likely to be outdated by the time anybody hears this in 10 years from now. What seems terrible and awful to us now will have become just a blip on a yet another calendar. So I'd like you to talk about your experiences abroad and the way that travel has helped give you, a, I think, a, the ability to crystallize your perceptions of the United States? I think that's a wonderful question, Rick. You know, most Americans who I meet are not well-traveled. <clears throat> and their perceptions, both liberal and conservative, have often 
been reduced when talking about how much I travel around the world, you know, well, other countries are jealous of us or this and that. There's always some kind of rationalization about a way of dismissing other countries' opinions of us. What I don't think Americans have understood for a very long time is that people are split about us around the world. I run into this all the time. They want America to succeed. They want it to be this golden place somewhere where if they can just get to it. It's like the X-Files, I want to believe. I want to believe, and they want to believe. And they begin to create a myth about us that we've helped to sell, by the way. Whether it's a kid in a, a Cadillac driving up Pacific Coast Highway with his hair moving. Whatever the image is, people love this image, this idea, this dream that's America. They want it. And then something like these mass shootings happen. And they get so angry at us, so frustrated, because we haven't lived up to the dream that they've created in their minds about us. Because they believe somewhere there's a place where their life can be better. Well, I dream of that place too. But for them, someone in Croatia or in different parts of Eastern Europe or in parts of China or in parts of the world that I've been, Sierra Leone, America. So for good or for ill, it's become the repository of, of millions and millions of people's dreams. And then when something like this happens, when we can't even have a rational discussion about Okay, you can keep your gun, but can't we talk about a clip that holds only 30 bullets instead of 90? No, we can't do that. They don't understand this. They don't understand why there's so many guns. They don't understand why. They said, but you're America. So what Americans sometimes view as people's hatred of us or dislike is profound disappointment that we haven't lived up to what people's illusions and dreams are uh, about us. And I find that rather sad. <laughs> I, you know, uh, we have so many people waiting out there to want to be our friends and really just embrace us all the time. After September 11th, the world was turning in our direction. And it was our great misfortune. We had some people in office who were not interested in that very much. You know, it makes me think that uh, the way you describe it is, it's like where America is uh, the teenager of nations. And, and literally, that's true. We are a young nation compared yeah. to any of the other ones. Yes, we are. Kind of but we should be growing behavior. up fast. Yes. Uh, you have a essay in here called Bringing Back the Draft, A Moral Imperative. I think this is a beautifully argued uh piece of opinion and, and so I'd like you to talk about what your proposal is and oh. how you expect people to react to this proposal when you propose something like this you have to have some kind of theory of mind of how people are going to see it oh uh, Rick first of all let me say in regards to belief or believing in something. I actually believe in this. Mm -hmm. I wasn't writing to be clever. I am actually proposing it, and I believe in it. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that uh, we have, the way we've behaved with a private army is reprehensible. Multiple deployments, people going out, and actually hearing people say to me, well, look, those people knew what they signed up for and 
doing it. I've actually had people say that to me. No, they didn't. No, they didn't think they'd be in multiple deployments in two wars that have lasted longer than World War I and World War II combined. No, they didn't. So what I propose, seeing this is so important, that's what the politicians say, that's what so many American citizens used to say, this is so important that I propose, uh, because the Army is being, is being stretched and being really stressed, that as a good and patriotic American, I advocate for a draft, and a very serious draft, no escape hatches, all the way up to 75 years of age, which then would include me as well. Uh, everyone's life is disrupted. Everyone's life. You're crippled, that's okay, you can still file. But uh, you're blind, that's all right. You can sit and talk and counsel children who are being asked to grow up too fast in a combat zone. Um, you're a senator's kid, tough, you're coming too. Um, retired senator, you're coming as well. Uh, everyone, everyone's coming because it's that important. It's that serious. Now, clearly not everyone will be in a combat zone, but what everyone will be is, is, is in this together and everyone's life will be disrupted. So I believe what's going to happen as a result of that is basically what happened with Vietnam. When those numbers kept coming up and we all got those little things in the mail, it was terrifying. Uh, it didn't cause you to get out in the streets and cheer for the war very much. It caused you to be reflective and really look at the war in an objective way. So all the people now who cheer on wars, which we've seen in the last over a decade, who had no skin, as they say, in the game, I think would be more reflective as they cheer something on, Mr. Bush advocating this or Mr. Cheney advocating that, if one of their loved ones or in fact themselves are going to be called to action. So what I propose is, is getting something that Americans can really understand now. Self-interest. Self-interest. I think that you do a, a great job, and, and I think that uh, this it's a, it's an interesting essay in that it's really short, it's really sharp, uh, and you on on occasion in this book your your language tends towards the eloquent and elegant. I mean, it, this Thank is you. beautifully written, but also you're not afraid to speak plainly, and in some of these pieces you just. Speak speak plainly, and that includes using words that you can't use on the radio. Yes. And I think that that gives this, these pieces a particular power. So as a writer, talk a little bit about going back and forth between um, something that you might hear in the House of Lords by somebody who doesn't have a lot of time and has to make the point pretty quickly, and yeah. something you might hear in a Brooklyn bar room by somebody who doesn't have a lot of point time and has to make the point rather quickly. Right. Well, I am from Chicago. <laughs> uh, I I love how you're saying that this this kind of balance between a kind of eloquence or elegance and uh, the way people talk. Uh, people don't talk elegantly all the time. They're, it's peppered. There's a piquant in it that's spiced, and in the writing, I originally removed those words in one of the many polishing. And then I realized that it took away 
the bit of emotion that I felt when I wrote that. And I thought that was unfair to me and unfair to the reader, that Michael is going to put himself there, uh, the good and the bad, and I have to get it to you the way it felt. So those words that I can't use here, for instance, weren't used for a fact. They were used because that was the emotion at the time. And when I removed them, somehow for me the piece changed. The piece was less about what we had originally talked about at the beginning of this talk. I wanted no confusion about what I had meant or what I was saying. There's a, a piece in here called The Absence of Poetry, which I think is a, a really beautiful reflection uh, about an approach to life. And, and I think that it folds in so nicely with the rest of this work. And you, as we read through this book, this book accumulates a kind of momentum. It almost has a mm. plot in terms of the emotional mm. arc of it. So I'd like you to just talk a little bit about this concept of an absence of poetry and how that plays into the emotional arc of this book. Well, uh, I think there are people of poetry and there are people of lists. And all the time it's a choice. And the irony about this is that a people of lists rarely engage in the poetry of living, but the people of poetry can do lists and not be completely overtaken and damaged by them. For some reason, we've chosen to be a people of lists. We have endless tasks that we're always doing. We move from screen to screen. We start in the morning, we get in our car, we go to a screen, and in between all the screens, there's life going on in between behind the screens. And some of that life is really quite simple and poignant and beautiful and reminds us how lovely it is and how strange it is to be alive. The chances of us being here in the first place were so remote. And here we are. And I thought to myself the same way that the most precious thing was robbed from my wife and I while she was dying was time and really seeing and talking to one another, not being occupied always by those things I'm supposed to do later on. And then I began to think, oh gosh, it seems like the people of poetry have more fun too. And why wouldn't someone want to have more fun? Why wouldn't they want to enjoy all of this more? There are things to be done. There are tasks and work. But we can do it with a little bit of a lighter heart. We can take a pause. We can stop for tea with actually a cup and saucer instead of a paper cup that we're running down the street with. We can make these choices. And I thought to myself, we're missing out on the dance. And because we're missing out on the dance, we don't seem to be in touch with our own humanity anymore. We don't seem to have a problem with millions of people without health insurance. We don't seem to have a problem. We're oh so, so busy. We're missing the dance. And I thought to myself, what it must be like to be there on the last day and to realize then that the only thing of value you ever did have in the end was time. And you wasted it. 
You wasted it on trivial tasks, endless tasks and endless screens. In your essay, The Last Night Train, you ask us a, a wonderful question that is well worth our time to think about. What is a country for? What led you to ask that question? And what kind of answers did you find yourself exploring? And how much of that came out of the language? And have you found new answers since? I think I know what a country is for. But I can't say categorically. I, I don't know if Americans now would agree with me. I. It seems what the United States is for now, almost exclusively, is for the promotion of business or corporate interests here or abroad. And I thought to myself, is that it? <laughs> yeah, that always strikes me, the idea of we need to run this country like a business. Yeah, I mean, I, is that it? It's not a business. <laughs> no, it's supposed to have a different ethos than that. Business is part of what we're supposed to be. It's not the entire thing we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be, in this supposedly extraordinary Christian nation, something much more than that. And so if, in fact, the country is just now this vehicle of promoting business or industry, then what is it when we're being asked to send children to fight other people? What are we fighting for and under whose flag? Are we flying under General Motors' flag or the Stars and Stripes? What, what is it for? Where do we put the values that we have? Is it in, finally, I have this recurring dream that we... We And I thought about it when I wrote that, that here are the American troops. They're coming into one of the extermination camps in Germany or Poland, and they, they, they free the inhabitants. And one of the German SS officers runs to them and goes, what about the jobs? We need the jobs, you know? They that, did need the jobs. They, did, Actually, they, they did need the, the jobs. Terms, that, that yes, was they needed the, the jobs. And, you know, the idea that you can brutalize and do all of these shenanigans and things and other people, but at least we're creating jobs, you know, we're making jobs, you know. Sometimes it feels that way in the United States. So, excuse me, you've just polluted all this water. But, yeah, but we're creating a lot of jobs at that chemical plant, you know, and you're saying, what? <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, and so as long as there's jobs, uh, uh, i.e., you can pretty much do anything you wish. Is that what a country is for, to ensure that someone can do that or an entity can behave that way? I don't think so. I think a country is a collective mindset where uh, citizens cannot guarantee that you will be successful, but they guarantee that you will, you will have a modicum of a decent life and a chance at a chance. And that when you're in trouble through no faults of your own, that we as collectively come and we say, let me give you a hand, let me help you out. I think that's what a country's for. And to build a railroad and to travel across the nation and know each other, I think that's what a country's for. And representatives who place the interests of the whole of the country above lobbyists and others just because their pockets are filled with money 
And I think a country is where citizens rise to their responsibilities and know that just occupying space is not being a citizen, that you participate, that you try to be somewhat knowledgeable of what's going on around you, and then exercise a smart vote. And if you can't do that, I'd love to start a please don't vote drive with people who really don't want to be citizens of the sort where we appeal to them not to vote so that finally we just have a, a pool of people who are really <laughs> wanting to vote. So I'm against more voting. I want, I want to start a no vote drive, you know, and I'd start with a lot of corporate heads. I'd say, would you do me a favor? Could you please not vote for five to 10 years? And I think we can get things straightened out a little bit. Uh, I don't think that'll fly, but there we are. Well, the you deserve one vote for every dollar you earn. That's, <laughs> yes. that's already you Yes, yes. I love the math of that. This collection is framed by two poems, and I think that they bring home a kind of uh, lead of personal thread through all the pieces, weave through all the pieces. And I'd like you to talk about writing the poetry. And I, I just think that the the reason you chose to write these pieces as poems and the personal place that starts the book, ends the book, and runs all through the book, which is, I believe, your relationship with your wife. Oh, yes. This book, uh, this book, Chris was always there in every um do you you remember how politicians of the past overseas and here when often they were giving speeches and trying to make a point John Kennedy is a good example Robert Kennedy as well and others they they reached back into the past sometimes and they would recite poems from poets they loved or a piece of writing it somehow it somehow conveyed from them, I think, of how not only what they had to get done, but what they dreamed of, what they hoped for. And poetry and writing prose can do that. It can, I thought it was just a dedication to Chris, the poem I had written about her. I always loved poetry, never thought I could write it, but I always loved it. And when I was going to take it out, it was the publisher who said, keep it in. And when I thought about it, I, I realized that was right. That was right. Because it softened. It did what many of the politicians or leaders did. It not only stated what I believed we had become, but it was talking about what I hoped I could have continued with Chris and I, a kind of hope for the country. I mean, I love my country. I, I have a very difficult time here. And I wish my fellow citizens well. And these essays sometimes were so harsh, so direct, that I didn't want them to misconstrue that meant that I had turned my back on it all and them that I never wanted to 
have them no other than I wish them well, which I do all the time, all the time. So I thought the poems to two people who were very important, one to Chris and one to someone who for five years was my Charlotte Shaw, as I said, and Charlotte Shaw was Lawrence of Arabia's confidant, the wife of George Bernard Shaw. And there was nothing I couldn't say to Mrs. Lewis, nothing, my fears, my greatest pains, that she would not respond to and talk to me and write me back. Thousands and thousands and thousands of words and exchanges. And so I thought the same way that Mrs. Lewis and Chris had given me this kind of hope. I wanted those poems to reflect that, and when they were suggested to stay in the book, I realized that was absolutely correct. It rounded out the rough edges a little bit. The new collection of essays by Michael Katakis is A Thousand Shards of Glass. Thank you for speaking with me, Michael. Rick, thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.